Hello and welcome to Why It Matters. This is a podcast for leaders who know that relevance is a moving target. I'm Michael Goff and I'm the Strategy Director at Spark Studio. This is a collection of interviews with leaders who are passionate about something that's being overlooked. Sometimes that will be a brand, a product or a service, but it can also be an idea, something that is losing its value or being taken for granted. And to re-express relevance, you need someone with vision. Today's interview is with Andrew Walsh and Matt Holland. Andrew is the MD and Chief Executive of the global software developer Iris. Matt is their Head of Product Marketing and Brand. In 2018, the business went through a rebrand. The catalyst for the change was summarised by Andrew with the statement, the pursuit of desirability is our mission. So in this interview, I'm asking Andrew and Matt why desirability matters. Gentlemen, welcome to Why It Matters. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you. And it'd be good to start with a sort of bit of history and context. Andrew, I'm wondering if you could just give us a bit of background to Iris, give us a sense of where Iris has come from and uh, your involvement with the business. When did you get involved? So Iris is a software business operating in financial services and where our history history starts in Australia. Uh, We're listed in Australia and we have been reasonably successful in this part of the world. And, and Australia, Australia is a small place, and so we've sought other opportunities in other parts of the world and now operate in a few few different jurisdictions. I've, I've been involved at IRIS since 2000. Our business I started with, with some, some colleagues was acquired by IRIS in 2003, and I became the CEO of the business in 2009. Very good. And Matt, how about you? How did you what was your relationship to IRIS? How did you get involved with the business? Uh, I was I, ha- I was working in London and Corin, who is my boss, who works with Andrew. I had worked with Corin before at Westpac in Australia, and he got in contact and said he was looking for somebody. And did I know anyone? And uh, somebody that I, my old boss from Westpac actually suggested that Corin contact me, and that's that was the introduction to Iris for me. And the heart of our question for the episode today is why desirability matters. And I guess the context for that is something that we saw as sparks in a deck from you, Andrew, was this kind of quote that the pursuit of desirability is our main aim. And that really stood out to us and was really interesting. I guess it would be interesting to understand why why does desirability matter for you? Well, I, I think the desirability for a business and a brand is, is really what is typified by the post-iPhone era. And we, we're providers of software and that software often provides a, a pretty core role within the businesses that we, we service. And what we, we're not happy with that. We identify that that's a, that's a, a really important responsibility and we aim to service that as, as well as we can. But, but we, we see that the opportunity for software in, in, in our clients' businesses as, as having more potential and felt at the time that that it shouldn't be a cost, it should be part of the strategy and part of the future. And so desirability lined up with that importantly. And uh, we, we saw them as both really, really critical ingredients for how we wanted to be seen, regarded, how we wanted decisions around us made by, by clients, purchasing decisions, all, all of the referral aspects and, and not, not something that people use just because they had to. Yeah. And Matt, I guess what would be interesting, you know, as someone who came into the business later on and given that sort of brief of, you know, we need to become more desirable, what was what were your observations about Iris at that inflection point that made you think you could see that actually there was a departure from desirability? What was going on in the business that made you think actually there's an opportunity? 
I think well, when I first discovered Iris, I, I didn't really I didn't really get what Iris was, and I thought that was an interesting challenge in the in the first instance to try and articulate that with a bit more clarity. And then one of the first things I read was the deck from Andrew, which ha- had that quote in it about uh, the pursuit of desirability. Desirability is our mission, and I kind of looked what at what I understood Iris to be, and I under- and and thought about desirability in the technology space or in the software space and in financial services, and it was it was an ambitious goal and, and and a difficult goal and I, th- I thought that was really interesting if there's a business that wants to get to a point where they're selling software to financial services and they're pursuing desirability then that's a challenge and I didn't think that Iris at that point was firing on all cylinders to get there. And Andrew for you what was the conviction what led you to make that statement what were you seeing in the business at that point that thought actually desirability is something that we need? Did, I mean I, I go, go back to this post post iPhone era where where expectations and ne- nearly cult following on on technology is is growing and all around us and that, that's okay when you think about that in terms of the software you, or the or the technology you use at home you know we've seen it infect how people expect to interact with their bank now or how they might go and borrow money from from a lender when when you start seeing people that work in the back offices of financial services firms have expectations of how they interact with software aligned to their retail or home experience. It's like something's happening here. And that, that re, you know, it used to be that, that technology advancement happened in corporates and commercial and then got to end users. That's, you know, the, the whole evolution of the PC. But, but what, what has happened since... 2011 is is that it's gone the other way and so what's happening in consumer land is increasing the bar for all professional users and that that is that is what we we identified and it exhibited itself in in things like user interface and we want it to look better maybe maybe even look sexy but but it goes beyond that it goes to user experience and it goes to how our clients interact with us and it goes to how they saw us in the market and, and what kind of role they thought that we've we fulfilled. And and this is this thing has culminated in in how we started to think about brand. And we 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 didn't start with thinking about a rebrand. We we started here thinking about strategy and desirability and these things I've spoken about. We we identified that brand needed to go along with that. And and so so it was sequence sequence and built up, hence Matt's Matt's role being being really necessary. There's obviously quite an emotional aspect to it as well. And you've talked there about the importance of it being, you know, from a client facing point of view, the importance of, of it being an enjoyable experience but Matt was there also an impact for an internal level as well that kind of engage the employee engagement as well did, did desirability speak to that audience as much as the as the consumer it wasn't the primary reason I didn't think because the the culture and the spirit at Iris is really positive anyway and business had grown and done what it needed to do for however long from 2003 to 2018 with without really thinking too much about it. So there wasn't a, a massive job to do in turning people around internally, but it definitely helped to bring people together, I think, or to, to create a sense of what could be, or what was possible in the future now that we, it wasn't a box to tick, but it was a good a good byproduct of doing the work that I think people really embraced what, 
what we've done and, and the direction that Iris was heading in. Yeah, although I'd add, I'd add to that and say that desirability also goes to how we think of think about ourselves as an employer. And so, so attraction and retention is you know critical for any any business that has has people involved and, and perhaps less on the retention bit, but but on the attraction it matters. And so, if you're at a at a university talking about graduate program or trying to attract people in the market, you've, you've also got to have a position in in the marketplace as an employer and, and brand becomes really relevant there. And so what what did strike me is talk, talking to a, to a small group of graduates and they asked me about our current brand. I, I, I re- recall exactly the discussion and that struck me to, you know, that the, they they didn't like, didn't associate with the brand that we had. And that, that's completely understandable because we we hadn't really given it given it a thought in all of our existence until this point. Well, we had we had, but but it was was a logo and it was a color. It wasn't wasn't a, a a positioning statement around who we are, what we stood for. Did we want to stand out? Did we not want to stand out? Uh, where did desirability fit? And 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 certainly much much bigger than brand, but but it, it did matter. Actually, I didn't realise that there was a kind of trigger trigger of a conversation that you know there was there was an outside perspective that said actually why should we want to work for Iris? You don't look particularly interesting. Um, I suppose you know desirability being quite an emotional thing. How how do you measure it? How do you know when you've got it? What how do you decide that that actually we're now desirable, whereas before we weren't? What are the things that you're looking at, at, at from a business point of view that actually says no, we we have moved on, we've pushed on into something that is more desirable. When, when when you're a small business, you 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 certainly pursue client referrals, and you you live and live and die by those referrals because you you don't don't come at it with you don't normally come at it, or at least we didn't come at it with a with a huge marketing budget that set, stands before us. And I, I think that's probably the ultimate test. To, you know, firstly, are we a, a begrudged purchase, or are people seeking us out and are people telling others about what what we've solved for them and how how easy it was or or how beneficial it was, and I I think that that that's the ultimate test. Uh, and you know if the if the employment lens on that is is relevant as well, we we have internalised recruitment over this period as well. So in, instead of a hundred percent reliance on external agencies, we've we've got a Probably an eighty-five percent reliance on internal recruitment teams, and can can we support the business objectives through an internal recruitment strategy that hangs on whether we can we can be desirable and attract people? So, if if that that number's falling, then it's not working on the external attraction side, and and if if clients are not buying more services or not not being able to act as advocates, then that's that's another critical test. And Matt, I guess in your role as brand, you're sort of on the watch out of, you know, making sure that what you're you're presenting to market is is an authentic reflection of the business. Is there a danger that the kind of pursuit of de- desirability becomes too much, that it becomes insincere or, or it kind of pushes you into a kind of space where it, it just starts to ring hollow? How do you how do you assess the kind of right level of desirability? Firstly, by understanding who your clients are and what what they want. I mean, the, the end end result is really we want to give our clients what what they need and what they what they're looking for. So, as long as you keep that in mind, I think you're probably halfway there. But and then it's the quality of the execution or the quality of the service that we're providing. So, from a brand point of view, it comes down to how, how 
articulate the messages and how clear the message is and, and how we how we are presenting that. So from an aesthetic point of view, that's balance, always balance to make sure it's not overblown or underdone or it, it hits the mark. And then from the client point of view, it's just about giving how easy is it for us to give them what they need and what they've, what they've asked for and, uh, and make sure it's what they want. And what's the tipping point? Is there a tipping point where it starts to become inauthentic? How would you know that actually, you know, you're sounding more like a haute couture fashion boutique rather than a, a more practical, pragmatic software provider? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think it's, uh, I, I don't know if there is a tipping point. I think it's more of a, from my point of view, it's a gut feel sounds a bit flimsy, but it's just a, a recognition of what you're doing and, and how close it is to what you've done and how close it is to what you're, what you're trying to do. If, if it's forced and it feels inauthentic, then it's probably not the, the right thing. You've just you've, We've got to keep in mind what we're doing is selling software to financial services. So uh, that's always a good starting point for the thinking. I'm not sure you ever get there. Like, I'm not sure there's a tipping point. And so you can, you can always, always be better. And I think it falls back to what, what we believe are important for values. And we, we would apply the same sniff test on values. Like we, we, we don't have pretty pictures on the wall that tell people what our values are. Our values are lived. And, and, and pe- people, colleagues internally and, and client experience can smell that out. And, and for example, one of, one of the things that we we hold dearly is that we believe things can be better and that means that we can develop software for better solutions we can deliver better experiences to clients and in in the context of desirability you can always be more desirable and so i I don't don't know that there is a tipping point but there is a there is certainly a a risk of shallowness and and so so what we are what we're trying to do is ensure that that is that is earnest. We can test that. We can we can check behaviour. We can we can talk to clients. We can get feedback from clients. We you know we're we're not perfect, and there's always more to do. Um, but but we have also started to evolve what what that that has meant in isolation. And so while desirability is is tightly coupled with with an essential role that we believe we provide. Uh, we've had to evolve that in a mission sense to to push push to a higher ambition Um, but but that is in no way saying that we've got there it's interesting to kind of hear about you know the the danger of the veneer of desirability rather than it becoming kind of something that is embedded into the culture what what are the critical steps would you say for implementing that desire for continuous improvement and the pursuit of desirability. How do you how do you actually get away from surface into substance? I think if I think about the work we've done in the last two years, what the, one of the critical steps is is making sure the narrative from people like Andrew fits fits the ambition. So because once you do that, you get people thinking differently and thinking about not that shallow surface level, but thinking about all right, what what's my role here and how do I really hit that how do I help Iris hit that amb- ambition to be better? And we, so for the last 12 months, we've done some work around that, trying to articulate a clearer vision or a clear, clearer goal or to set, set the North Star or whatever terminology you, you want to use. So that, so, but doing it in a real, reasonably simple way and e- accessible way so people can grab hold of it and, and understand where Iris is, is heading. So that, that's almost a starting point. And, and then it's how you structure the business or how you structure the work that you're doing and build the right teams and the people around you to, to get that job done, make sure it's uh, the common goal is is consistent across uh, everyone making a contribution to Iris. Yeah, and you have, you have, to, you have, to, have to ensure that consistency. And so 
we we have we have evolved the way that we we coordinate what what goals are at a corporate level, a team level, or function level, team level, and in an individual level, and lining all of those up. Uh, you, you, you can't have objectives that then have different execution plans across different functions and teams and individuals. And so uh, d- desirability goes, goes, goes through that in a, in a, in a central, central way. Um, so, so you've got to live it. And if you, if you say that and then it doesn't get reflected in the way that you prioritise what everyone should be doing, then, then that's, a, that's a pretty good, good sign that it's just a poster on a wall. And, and how do you do it at scale? I mean, you guys are a pretty big, punchy business. I think, I think what, 2,000 or so employees operating in sort of five, six different markets. How do you, how do you manage the, the scale of that desire across the whole enterprise? Well, it, it, it's it's not not always as concentrated in equal portion everywhere, uh, but but we've we've been honing honing and maturing the way that we we set objectives for the for the for the year or the or the or the two year period. Uh, we've made that easier. We've made that clearer. We've made that distinct. Uh, we've made it simpler, uh, and um, we we for example have have removed cash bonus from our remuneration model and we have introduced higher equity allocations to to individuals to remove potentially unaligned unaligned behavior and i think that there you know put your money where your mouth is and and there are things like that that we've done that that are that are all associated with what we're trying to do here and what's lost for you if desirability wasn't part of the business? If you hadn't done that sort of uh, step change in 2018, um, what, what, where would Iris be now by comparison? I'd, I'd say that we're not there yet, but um, in the first place, like we've discussed, the, you know, if, if we didn't, didn't have a goal internally of wanting, wanting to be easier to deal with or deliver better, better working software or better outcomes for clients, then... I think it's I think it's obvious that clients would look for alternatives or force alternatives, uh, or we wouldn't grow, or you know. There, so the the range of very very direct financial outcomes, but you know, I think think things would have felt harder for 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 our people, and and it would have just been less attractive to to work here. And you know, the hard is a funny thing because it it is hard to work here, and especially if you're growing, it it isn't it, it isn't sitting sitting around having tea. But hard, hard in a negative way is really, really, really depressing. I think it's a, it's about ambition from a marketing point of view. Even the talk about desirability, it's you know, in some ways, it's a pretty amorphous word. It's hard to define, but it gives you something unusual to aim for. And so, without that, if we, I think the the other other word that we talk about is essential. And if it was just essential then you change from a marketing point of view. I think you change how you think about what you need to do and, and how ambitious or how close to the line you can go. You know, you're talking about that tipping point before how, how ambitious can you be because you've got, you almost have to be thinking in that way to get to a point of desirability because essential is just sort of facts and figures. And yeah. So we've, we've done some, some more work recently to make sure that conceptual aspect of desirability isn't as conceptual so we have 
we have work, worked with statements of ambition to bring more clarity to that and make sure that people internally can, can connect to that ambition. Matt, do you, want to, do you want to just talk about how we've evolved? We were talking about essential and desirable and, and this, uh, I did this exercise with the leadership team at the end of last year because uh, uh, to just test whether that was still correct and, and accurate. And what we found was that desirable is a uh, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So we recognized that we needed to define that a little bit more clearly uh, so so that people could grab hold of it a little bit more and, and understand it a little bit more. And what we where we got to was translating desirable to making it easy for people to love financial services. And when we talk about love, again, it's another one of those themes uh, that, that means different things to, to different people. So we started to define it in four different ways without being too prescriptive. But when people ask us to, to, to talk about that a little bit more, we use four principles. One is that we want people to love their financial services provider. So what are we doing to help our clients and users enable and empower uh, the people that they work with, their clients and users? So that's, that's principle number one. Number two is we want people to love how something works. People that we work with, we want people to love their, their jobs. So we want to enable people to do the best job that they can possibly do using the technology and the software that Iris provides. And in, ultimately, we want to make sure people love the result. So, so in, the, in financial services, you're creating wealth for people, you're managing people's money, you're trying to you know, create a return in a often you know, in a situation where somebody wins and somebody, somebody loses. Um, you, we want to make sure that the software and the technology and the relationship that people have with Iris means that it leads to better financial performance, either the output of the way that their business operates and more, more efficiency in the way that their business operates or the returns that they're generating for uh, their clients. Interesting. And how aspirational were they at the point of conception? Were, were they just a reflection of what was already going on? Or was there, were you actually putting a line in the sand saying, no, we need, to, we need to be running towards this? Doing that exercise with the LT, there was a quiet optimism is probably the best, almost an, I don't want to say an embarrassed optimism, let's call it a quiet optimism that was yet to be articulated or a quiet ambition that was yet to be articulated. Everyone on the leadership team has very big picture, a very big view of what Iris could be and what Iris could become. And the job was to bring it together and put it into into a way that was accessible and easy to understand, but allowed for growth and ambition. Didn't cap it, if that makes sense. So it's a balance between being ambiguous and being practical and giving people stuff to hold on to and stuff to stuff to focus on so that's where we got to with these four points but but what we what we what we have have tied that to is also identifying the kind of client that wins and instead of instead of it just being desirable in the broadest sense what we've tied that to is loving financial services and progressive financial services firms and so what what we want to associate with is technology that helps winners win not laggards exist and that that, that those series of statements that we've we've been able to refine have better landed with people knowing the, the kinds of decisions they need to make in their everyday roles that go to that ambition and so if i'm if i'm making a decision between whether i do x or y which one of those is is lined up to a progressive financial services outcome and which one is and there there are some things that we 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 have to do because of the, the client situation but where we've got choice of how we might implement something then one leads to desirability and outcomes and the other doesn't and that helps people parameterize those decisions that they make every single day of their life 
are there limitations for in that pursuit and that goal and that ambition? Is there is there a point in which actually the pursuit of desirability, that desire for continual improvement, can only go so far? Where's where's the stopping point of it, of it having a genuine impact? Well, we we applied internally as well because we 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 give give our people license to to change things, and. We need need process in order to scale and and grow, but we need to optimize the level of process before it becomes useless. And 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 so if if something something is there and doesn't add value, then we should remove it to remove the frustration. Or if there is something that is is done that doesn't need to be done, we shouldn't do it anymore. Businesses are a classic at just producing reporting for reporting sake. Or if there is something that is done done that could be automated, then then we should step out and automate that. And so desirability has, you know, isn't only about what the client interaction is, but it but it goes to how how efficiently we can operate because ultimately that will affect the client. And so when we're not it's not limited to just the software or service we provide. It's it's also about how how we apply that, you know, how the builder builder fixes their own house. Um, so, so I, I don't, I don't think that there is there is a limit, but but we we are also very externally facing, and so if it doesn't doesn't have a have a clear path to to assisting a client, then I think that we we, we don't just want to polish our own floor. And you've obviously grown, you know, looking at the news, you've grown quite a bit through through big acquisitions, and acquisition is a kind of key strategy for your for your growth strategy. When you're acquiring new enterprises and folding them into the the Iris family, how are you making sure that that desirability can can roll out into other other enterprises as well? So brand change is a is a is a really important element of that, and there, there are different different situations for different transactions that have occurred over our history and also in present times. But but I think that goes to making making it clear and consistent what we stand for, and. I think it's fair to say that Iris culture has evolved over time based on additions that, that we've had and cohorts of people that have come in and, and we believe that that is, that is for a better result. Uh, and so it's, so it's not totalitarian, but there are things that are really important to us and there are things that are less important. But we, we will go through a process of making sure people understand the values, the ambition, the way that we do things, the why we do things, uh, aligning to change potentially remuneration structures but but certainly the way that people prioritize objectives for the year and how that lines up to what we do as a group so that 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 process is is pretty involved it's it's quite heavy not heavy-handed but but it but it also takes time and Matt, just thinking about the sort of rebranding exercise itself and that sort of turning turning that mission statement into something that makes a, a difference to the look and feel of the business both in terms of how you describe yourselves and how you look what what were the lessons that you learned during that process about that sort of transformation from from being quite a functional practical business into something that was pursuing desirability what was interesting about the iris rebrand having done a couple of rebrands at, at other companies is that we didn't start with the rebrand in mind and I think in the end, that was a that was a good thing because we started slowly and we started from a considered place and, and we, we almost, you know, went step by step rather than thinking we've got to stop and we've got to change everything. And then you, you're stuck with a blank page. And I think that's a little bit more daunting than just sort of stepping through the process. I, I, you know, when we worked with you guys, I think we kept pushing it a little bit further, a little bit further. And we take a little bit more back to Andrew and 
his team and and their team have got a little bit little bit further a little bit further and so it sort of evolved into a rebrand project rather than began as a rebrand project and i think that not so much a lesson learned but for from a experience point of view contrasted with other rebrands that was a nice way to go because you you you're attacking it methodically rather than you know the amb- ambiguity of a blank page it was the end right it was we'd, we'd been working on the cake for a while and and deliberately waited until things were in place before we could ice it and in too many other places there, there are posters on walls with new colors and and things that that don't have the substance behind what it means yeah i think that's i think that's spot on actually that that it was it was the icing on the cake is the right way to think about it. It was very it felt very genuine. It felt like the right thing to do at the at the right time. Like I, to be honest, I feel like I stumbled into it. It was serendipitous in some ways because it just all sort of married up it in in one go. It wasn't manufactured or forced, which is which is good. Lessons learned. Uh, oh, I don't know. That's a that's a good one. I think work with people you can trust and and don't approach it with uh, the mindset that you know it all. I think I worked with you with some confidence that I I knew sort of what I wanted, but then keep I kept my 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 mind open or we kept our approach open to be shaped by you and to be pushed by you, um, which was good. We didn't. I think we 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 moved pretty quickly in the end, but I think we originally thought we'd get it done in three months or. It was January, wasn't it? It was that Christmas period where we saw some work from you in late December, and it was it was good. It was he- heading in the right direction, but it wasn't wasn't where we wanted to go. And then we had that that Christmas break where everything shuts down, and and we've had a meeting in the diary with we're presenting to Andrew's team in I don't know whenever it was early January or late January, or when, and we we almost were at the point where we didn't have anything to show until that first week of January. In some ways, keeping a tight timeline is good because it pushes people, but also it always takes longer than you expect, I think. I think, though, what helped, helped that is that we, we also had, a, had clarity of what we were chasing and we, we, didn't, didn't have, we, we didn't come into it and say we need a new brand and then have to spend all of the time that we'd spent over the time making the cake. So I think, the, I think it helped, helped the efficiency of that process. Well, I guess the other the other aspect is that there's been a sort of proliferation of, of businesses that are being much more focused on purpose and and the impact of what they're doing, and that's often aligned to sustainability, although that's not that's not always a kind of exclusive thing. But that that sort of push into the purpose space is definitely sort of driven from a kind of emotional point of view, in the similar way that kind of desirability speaks to our emotions rather than our, uh, and to the benefits. I'm just wondering if you were if you were meeting a peer in a similar, perhaps in a different space, in a leadership level or in a kind of CMO, and they're thinking about this sort of transition that they recognise that the market is shifting, that there is much more emotion and uh, and purpose driving their sector, and they're they're perhaps much more functional uh, and technical in there. What would you be a, saying to them to help them encourage to take those steps into being more focused on on purpose and impact and and outcomes what will if they were to come to you and say how do you do it what would you say you know you you can talk all you like you can paint the front of the front of the business any color you like unless it's lived and and that that is actually an expression of all of the actions that that are inside then it can be can be pretty shallow and 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 the, the brand thing can have a short life and or, or not live up to the intent that that the brand strategy had. So I, I think it think it's about looking at what the actions are of the people, and and I think that the culture and 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 people and leadership are central to this thing, and they need to be on earlier than the marketing team telling you what the colours are. Not intended as a harsh comment, but but it has has to be substance. 
Yeah. Purpose as a word makes me a bit sweaty, to be, to be honest, because I always feel nervous talking about purpose because it, it has become, in some ways, this focus on sustainability or making the world a better place. Or We did put one of those options on the board when we were talking talking about purpose at Iris. What was good about that was, I think, where we've ended up is, a, is less a purpose in the sense of a sustainable mission or and just an, it's a good, solid organizing thought. It's a rallying point for everyone to get around a common goal and understanding. And I think uh, without being too earnest, we, we are a software company making software for financial services. And what we need to do is help those our clients do what they do better. And and that's as, as simple as it gets. So the purpose makes me sweaty, but the idea or the, the, the role behind purpose is, is helpful. I guess what you're both saying is there's, there's a caution there about being wary of overreaching and overstretching to a point where it, it no longer feels believable or, or even deliverable, that it becomes, it just becomes, as you say, you're paying lip service to something. Question for both of you. Anything that you've been watching, reading, listening to that you think would be worth checking out? We've got a puppy. And so I have to take the puppy for a walk. And so I've been doing lots of, listening to lots of podcasts. And I started listening to this podcast called Blockbuster which is about, um, oh. I think there's three series now, but it's a really well-produced, professionally produced podcast out of the United States. And they look at, the first series was on the relationship between George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and what they went through to create Star Wars and Jaws. And I, I like Star Wars and I like, I like Jaws, but the wow. way that they bring it to life is really, really interesting. So interesting, in fact, that I went back and watched Jaws uh, a couple of days ago to see how they how they dealt with it. But yeah, I, I really geeked out on it. I think it's really cool. It's from the minds of the people who are creating stuff. And you know, I love to know what goes on inside the minds of creative people. Yeah. Yeah, great. And for you, Andrew, anything that uh, has been a bit of inspiration that stood out to you in recent months? Uh, I, I, I risk being incredibly boring, but I, I tend not to tend not to listen to podcasts. Um, but but the place that I, I do do it is on the plane. And the reason I don't typically listen to them that much is because I'm usually trying to also do something else. And so the music's often better for that. But I did listen to, to a podcast called Down the Rabbit Hole, and it's a New York Times production. And it, it talk, talks about the, the scary aspects of getting getting sucked into topics that are really deep and endless because of the way that algorithms work on on things like YouTube and, and the danger of that, um, you know, you, you might lead to fanatics or, or or just just something else. And so, interesting bit, or the thing that is on my mind lately is then ha- how does that play into education? And I've got two teenage boys, and so what what is it about the way that they learn or the way that they think that actually asks questions instead of just hearing it, believing it, and then going further down that down that hole? So anyway, that's that's the maybe maybe not interesting or inspirational, but that's the thing that is is on my mind more, more often than not. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time on Why It Matters. It's been a pleasure to have you on, and appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, pleasure. You've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters has been put together by Spark Studio, the brand and design agency based in London. To find out more about us, visit our website at sparks-studio.com. Join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at hashtag whyitmatterspod or get in touch with me at whyitmatters at sparks-studio.com. Thanks for listening.